Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels. This is John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage. Today, you're in for a real treat. On the podcast today is my guest, Ben Morrison. Ben is the co-founder of Handsome Cycles, a super cool bicycle manufacturer and marketer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It started in the year 2008. Generally speaking, Ben's role has been to lead the marketing and product design efforts at Handsome, and in his leadership, he's helped create an award-winning retail venture, along with winning numerous local and national awards for the company's marketing materials, including Best of Show for the retail store. Ben has designed and implemented Handsome's U.S. Assembly model, which I'm eager to hear more about. And he was involved in redirecting the company to a direct consumer business model. To learn more, check out handsomecycles.com. Ben, I'm stoked that you're here. And welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks so much, John. I am uh, flattered that you want to chat today. So it is truly my pleasure. Oh, it's, it's all my pleasure. So Ben, with this podcast, I'm starting a new format that splits the interview into three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help move them forward. And the final part is the Let's Get Personal component, where frankly, we get into some more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Ben, are you ready for the interview? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Great. <laughs> Give me the basics. So, Ben, number one, in your own words, describe your company, its product, or even the product scope, and what makes it so unique among your customers. Sure. So, we started Handsome Cycles in 2008, uh, which hindsight being 2020, you know, 2008 was not really the best time to start a fledgling business. Uh, but thankfully, we were young and dumb enough at the time to just kind of keep forging on anyway. But, you know, when we started Handsome Cycles, um, me and my other and my co-founder, Jesse, we saw a very large gap in the market that we thought we could fill. So Handsome Cycles makes really beautiful, elegant classically inspired bicycles that are mainly meant for commuting. And so me and Jesse grew up working at his family's bike shop, uh, the Alternative Bike and Board in uptown Minneapolis, where we specialized in selling commuter bicycles. And so we had a pretty good idea of what was out on the market. And what we really saw was for your standard kind of off-the-shelf production bikes, they were very uninspired and they were downright ugly. And then on the flip side, but, but let me point out this too, is that but the production bikes came with a really affordable price tag. And on the, on the kind of opposite end of the spectrum, 
um, there was this kind of this explosion in the custom bike world. So, you know, there's these amazing craftsmen across the country and I mean across the world, but um, these amazing craftsmen who are creating these bicycles one at a time where they're hand building, hand welding each frame. And really what we saw was um, the, the, the custom bikes were they're stunning, they're beautiful, um, but they came with an insanely heavy price tag and a really long wait time. And especially you know, if, if you weren't a diehard cyclist already, it's insanely intimidating to go talk to one of those guys and try and plot out what you want to do. And so you know, what we kind of saw was you know, if we could give this custom look and feel at a production price point, uh, we thought we could make a really compelling case to build a brand around that. Um, because, you know, we'd have customers come into our store that would love these custom bikes, the look that they found online, but then would, of course, balk at a four or $5,000 price tag. And so really what we started honing in on is how do we make really sophisticated commuter bikes but really um, give them this much more sophisticated, elegant, kind of grown-up feel that these custom guys uh, were turning out. Um, so that was kind of the, the fledgling idea behind Handsome. And so we started with making uh, one bicycle frame that, you know, our first year we made one frame in three different sizes. Um, and so, and, and, and mainly because, you know, making bicycles is a really capital intensive uh, venture. And so we kind of had to grow organically. And so we, what, we started with just one bicycle frame. Um, and now, Eight years later, we've expanded into, we have about a total, I think we have like six or seven different complete bicycles that we offer, as well as a range of parts and accessories as well. Regarding your product's custom look, uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove correct? Or did you discover a different uniqueness or a selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting customer feedback? You know, um, a lot of our kind of assumptions proved to be pretty accurate, but the interesting part was finding some uh, what I would call adjacent uniqueness that worked out really well for us. So, you know, one of the things that we had gotten um, from feedback when we worked in bike shops was that, you know, we'd send somebody out on your standard off-the-shelf brand. They would come back and say, hey, I really like the way this bike rides, but I really hate the way it looks, and I really don't want to be you know, riding around on a billboard for some brand that I don't really care about. And so, so one of the thoughts that we had early on was, you know, first of all, I have a marketing background. And so, you know, we, I, I always knew we could choose, we could out design everybody when it comes to colorways and stuff like that. But one of the things that we made a really conscious decision on out of the gate was extremely minimal branding. And so all of our bikes ship without any logos on them. Um, there's a teeny head badge on the front that's completely removable. And then everything else, we just include a really cool little decal packet where customers can put it on if they like, but otherwise they can keep it uh, as kind of, you know, logo free as they wish. Um, but what we found is kind of an adjacent unique factor with that that we hadn't planned on is, you know, what we found is our customers really want their bike to kind of be a reflection of themselves. They want it to feel like they have the only one like it and that it's really unique. And what was interesting that we found is giving them that kind of blank canvas of an unbranded bike really let them um, 
figure out ways to kind of put themselves into that bike much more. You know, our, our customers tend to really feel like their machine is a reflection of themselves um, and really kind of speaks to them. And so, you know, one of the things we found is it really opened up the door to these customers to really start looking at how to customize their bike. And so, you know, now that we sold them a standard bike, you know, now they want to buy a rack for it. Now they want to buy a really fancy leather seat for it. Now they want to buy a really cool, you know, pannier bag for it. Um, it, it really kind of became this vehicle of self-expression for them, um, which was something we hadn't, in, you know, we hadn't really thought about going into it, but it's turned out to be a really um, kind of great differentiator for Handsome. And so do you articulate that really clearly in your marketing materials, that vehicle of self-expression? We do. Um, you know, we try to. I honestly think we could do a little better. Um, in its, its, it, it, but we, we have, you know, we, we do a really good job of showing people making it their own. I mean, what's, what's interesting when it comes to marketing materials with something like that and, and where we honestly have friction from time to time is inevitably if I show in a marketing material a fully customized bike that somebody built, um, 24 hours later we're going to get a handful of emails of people saying, How come, I want to buy that specific thing, how come it's not on your website? And so it's this interesting kind of balancing act we have to that we try and walk of, you know, we want to show people making it their own and making it special to them, but then also need to be very clear that, you know, this was a after purchase, um, you know, kind of adjustments that this customer made and it's not necessarily something we can offer to you on a, um, you know, easily available kind of off the shelf option. Tell me how. So here we are in the tell me how segment of the podcast, Ben, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Ben, let's talk about raising capital, keeping in mind that most aspiring entrepreneurs have no knowledge of how to get money for their startup. How did you get outside capital? Did you need it in the first place? Um, sure. So we, I mean, we absolutely needed outside capital. Um, the bike industry, the, the logistics of it is it is a very capital intensive business. And so, um, you know, the, the way that it tends to work is we, you have to put a 30% down payment down when you place your order. It takes about three months for your order to get made. Then you have to pay the remaining 70%. Then it goes on a boat, and then you don't see it for 30 days till it shows up. And so it's a very capital-intensive business because you end up having to float cash for about four to five months. Um, and so when we started, you know, that's why when we started, we started with just one bicycle frame because we knew if we wanted to begin, we had to begin as small as humanly possible. And so starting with one run of bicycle frames, I think was about $12,000. And in order for us to do that, you know, we first started with, you know, we put our business plan together. We filed, you know, we did all our filings with the state and all that stuff. Um, and then it really was kind of friends and family out of the gate is we sat down with a handful of friends we knew. Um, we were lucky enough to know a couple guys in the financial world. One of them uh, who was a really good friend of ours just said, hey, you know, I, I'm willing to take a bet on you guys 
and give you that 12,000 you need to make your first order. Um, and so that's, that's what got us going. Um, but I mean, you know, it's funny, we're, we're eight years in and we've, we've gotten incremental capital throughout the years, but we have yet to do a really big capital raise. Um, you know, we try to grow organically, um, mainly in the sense of, you know, we're the last thing we want to do is raise a bunch of money and then not be able to execute on an idea. And so we, we've tried to be very cautious in our raises, um, but they've all been, you know, we um, pretty friends and family, except for a, uh, a specific deal we did with a ad agency in Minneapolis called Knock. Um, they're about the largest kind of uh, deal we've done thus far, but. Other than that, it's pretty much been us really doing that kind of round between who do we know and, and kind of bringing in, um, you know, friends or, or family we know in, in the specific finance world. So you had a key decision to make there and you sort of breezed through it lightly. The, the, the idea that you started off with one frame instead of multiple frames. How tempting was it to start with a, a variety of frames and did you get any advice on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, the interesting part is um, we knew out of the gate we only wanted we, out of the gate we knew we only wanted to do one frame, and honestly, that was a decision based on the fact that we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. Um, you know, we had the the way Handsome really began is me and my business partner Jesse saying, "What would it cost to make?" you know, a few bicycle frames that we could sell at the bike shop, at, at, at the alt. And that led us to start reaching out to manufacturers and researching who makes steel bikes, figuring out who makes them, and then emailing them and saying, hey, what's your minimum order quantity? And then once they said, you know, I think minimum orders for us, when we made that first frame, I think we had to order 120 of them. And so, you know, that really led us to go, okay, well, that's more money than we thought we were going to have to spend um, to make them. So we, we better only start with one. And furthermore, we had no idea how to design a bike. I mean, you know, we went through a handful of rounds of samples um, and we, we had kind of really no idea what we were doing. So we knew we wanted to start with one because we had no idea if this was ever going to even be a business. It really just started with me and Jesse saying, I wish we could sell this type of bike at the Alt and then we went, okay, what would it, you know, what would have to be true for that to be able to happen? Um, and that's what kind of led us down this rabbit hole. So on the same topic of raising capital, yeah. do you have any key pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs that are thinking about launching a physical product-based business? Yeah. You know, what I will say, it's funny, and I wish I could take credit for this, but I heard it from somebody else at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Um, I don't remember who said it, but I, it will stick with me forever as far as the next business I do, where he was talking about um, when you're putting your financials together to raise capital. And his advice, uh, which I thought was genius, is he said, look, everybody always writes their financials with a writing it in what is the best scenario I can paint that will get me funding. And he said that is completely the wrong way to approach it. The way you should write it is write your financials with the understanding of what is the worst projections I could possibly give that would still get me funding. Um, because the, the funding world is a very small world and 
if you can be the company that is constantly over delivering on your financial projections, you will find your second round of funding or get funding for your next business exponentially easier. Um, so that is something I wish we would have had done earlier or I would have thought about when we were writing ours. Um, but that was definitely some, I think, great advice that I'd never heard framed that way before. Um, but beyond that, you know, for doing products, I mean, for us, it was, you know, the steep learning curve was all the little expenditures that pop up that we didn't really think about, right? Which is, you know, what is your shipping going to cost? What is your duties? That's something that had never occurred to us is paying our import taxes um, to import products into, you know, the country. Um, and then, you know, do we have to hire a shipping broker? I mean, it, it was all those little um things that popped up that slowly chew away at your margin that we had not necessarily thought of or planned for. And so I think, you know, our, my best advice coming out of my experience is really make sure you have every single duck in a row and that you have walked through the entire process. I mean, even looking at, you know, what is your product liability insurance? I mean, again, all these little things that when you have this little fledgling idea aren't necessarily on your radar yet. Um, but need to be factored in because they are just going to slowly chip away at that margin uh, of profit. Let's shift the topic to finding a manufacturer. How did you find a manufacturer for your bicycles? You know, what we did at first is, um, thankfully, both me and my co-founder, Jesse, had been working in the bike industry for a very, you know, working at bike shops for a long time. And so we, we had a lot of friends within the industry who worked for um, other bike companies. And so um, for a hand, you know, what we kind of did a mix of two things where we reached out to some friends we had at other bike companies and said, hey, you know, we're looking, you know, we, we knew a couple things out of the gate. We knew we wanted to make the steel bicycles. We knew we wanted them produced in Taiwan because that's where the best quality was coming from. And so based on those two ideas, um, we, we kind of took a two-prong approach, which is one, we reached out to contacts we had at other bike companies and said, hey, you know, here's what we want to do. Here's where we want to get it made. Do you have any suggestions of who we might be able to approach? And then simultaneously, um, you know, I was doing a lot of research of finding out who were the competitor brands that we would be going up against who made really quality, great steel bikes, and where were they getting their stuff produced? Um, and then based on that, we kind of started doing some cross-references of, okay, well, I know, you know this company, this company, and this company all work with X manufacturer. And on top of that, you know, my contact at, at this other brand said that they're a great company. And so it, it was kind of... Um, gathering information from two different sources and then kind of cross-referencing them. Um, and then once we had it selected down to like three or four, it was really reaching out to them. And, you know, there was a few things that mattered to us, which is how responsive were they going to be and timely with when we needed information? You know, what were their minimum order quantities? What were their, what was the financial obligations? You know, do we have to pay everything up front? Can we pay 50% up front and 50% 30 days later? Um, you know, it was really figuring out who was going to work with a company our size because I think, you know, that's one of the biggest struggles when you're a starting brand, especially when you're looking at manufacturing is it's really hard to get taken seriously and because you're, you know, if you're the smallest uh, company on their roster, you know, you're always going to get bumped on, your, on the production line for a bigger company. And so for us, we kind of wanted to find 
a manufacturer that worked with smaller brands um, so that you know they would kind of know how to work with us in the ebb and flows of, of, of a small business as opposed to a manufacturer that only works with large corporations um, that wouldn't be as receptive to dealing with a company our size. Did you have to sell yourself to that manufacturer and are you still working with them? Yes. Um, do we have to sell ourselves? You know, it's int- kind of, you know, th- they need to know that you're serious. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of brands that are around for a year or two, will make one or two runs of bikes and then kind of fold up shop. And I think all those manufacturers have been burned by that before. And so they're all a little leery to take on a small company like ours. And so we definitely had to sell ourselves a little, you know, I think we ended up actually sending out essentially, um, what was pretty close to our investor package, you know, we just kind of stripped out the financial end of it, um, but really, you know, showed them, here's the branding we're doing, here's the models, here's how, I mean, we kind of laid out the case for the entire company, um, and they bought into it, Uh, but but since, you know, it's funny, we've, we've switched manufacturers now three times, we're on our fourth manufacturer, um, you know, and some of that was when we moved from doing just bicycle frames to doing complete bikes. We had to find a new manufacturer because we needed one who also had the capability to start sourcing parts for us. And then we switched again um, about 18 months ago. We kind of re-engineered the business plan, and now we do all of our assembly here in the U.S. And so when we did that, we had to find another new manufacturer again um, because the current one we made, you know, a, a big part of their fee to us was that labor to do the bike assembly. And so they didn't really want to work with a company our size if they weren't going to be getting that assembly fee anymore. So we had to go find a different manufacturer that was willing to work with us, um, knowing that they weren't going to be doing the assembly. What was or what is your number one problem, if any, working with a manufacturer? And how have you overcome those challenges? Um, you know... I would say there's a few, um, I would say doing manufacturing, uh, in Taiwan or China, um, there's some language barriers, um, that can be problematic. There's timing, which can be problematic, right? Because they don't, you know, they don't come into the office until about 11 o'clock midnight, my time here in Minneapolis. And so we kind of work on opposite schedules so it can take a while to get stuff done because there's a lot of back and forth that happens. Um, you know, the, the, the ongoing struggle for us is usually the financial breakdowns of, again, when you're a small company and you're not a, a, a you know, extremely well capitalized company, it's really difficult at times to, to pull off the economics of, um, you know, of, of, of floating this cash for about five months and then, you know, the, and then another factor that goes into it is if then you're, you know, when we sell those bikes to a dealer, you know, they want 30 to 60 days to pay their bills. And so now you're talking about floating cash for six to seven months. If they um, pay their bills. That's true. If they pay their bills and, or if they pay them on time. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's been the economics uh, that have probably posed the biggest challenges. But I would also say, you know, those economics is, are what has forced us um, to kind of keep being innovative and have really led us to do some of the best work as far as, um, you you know, repositioning our brand and really switching directions to a direct-to-consumer. I mean, 
you know, it's one of those, I think, you know, through, through that type of struggle is where our best creativity has come from. And so though it is a complete pain at times, you know, I, I do think it's made us a better company in the long run. On the topic of finding a manufacturer, do you have any one piece of advice on how someone can find a manufacturer for their physical product? You know, it's a tricky one. I think it depends on the industry. Um, you know, in the garment industry, I, there's this really amazing website um, that's I'm drawing a blank on now. But there's some really interesting websites that you can go to and it'll show you, um, you know, here are different factories and different industries. Um, but, you know, I would say to me the the biggest thing for us as far as working with a factory and the challenge is really getting them to understand kind of the overarching idea of what you're going for. You know, what we have found, um, what we have found to be troublesome at times is the factory will get too focused on the minutia and not understand, you know, kind of the general um, idea of what we're going for. You know, they won't necessarily offer ideas and suggestions of what we could be doing because they don't fully understand exactly what we're trying to execute. And so I think, you know, if you can be exquisitely clear of what exactly your goals and visions are, I think you will be 10 times better off uh, than most. Let's shift the topic over to selling your product to retailers. I understand you're not doing that now, but early on, how did you do that? How did you approach them? Well, so, you know, it's, and we still do sell to some retailers. We have just wildly scaled it back. Um, we used to have about 65 dealers at our peak and we carved it back to about 15. Um, for us, Going into retailers was always very challenging. You know, we are a very niche brand, and the there's good and bad to that. But you know, one of the things we knew early on is that our brand does not work well in a big box store. Um, you know, we knew if you think of the big chains. So in, in you know here in Minneapolis, it's a Penn Cycle or a Eric's or you know on the East Coast, I think it's Mike's Bikes or that's the West Coast. Sorry, Mike's Bikes. Um, you know, we, we knew that our brand is never, or even an REI, our brand would never perform in an environment like that. It's just not set up for it, you know. And so we knew out of the gate we were going to have to talk to the smaller mom and pop shops, and that was going to be our core demo. Um, and, you know, for that, it, it was really a lot of cold calling, a lot of going on sales trips. You know, um, it was a lot of knocking on doors and getting a lot of doors shut in your face, quite honestly. Um, but again, we knew for the, for the company we wanted to build and really the brand we wanted to build, um, it was going to rely on those independent, smaller bike shops as opposed to those big box, large retailers. And so that was really kind of um, our, our idea going into it. When you were occasionally getting rejected to what extent did you not expect that you know um one of the things so we we expected a certain amount of rejection because of the fact if you look at the way most 
so it, it, you know, let's take a brand like Trek or Specialized. What they tend to do is have a bike at you know, say every fifty dollars, right? So they have a bike for three forty nine, three ninety nine, four forty nine, four ninety nine. And what bike shops love about that is they can go to one brand and they can fill most of their sales floor. And so we knew we were never going to be able to fill that piece of it. Um, you know, I think part of the stuff we probably didn't anticipate was, you know, so, so an interesting thing is looking at the regionality, right, of where our product plays well and where it doesn't. Um, we always thought Seattle would be a great, you know, Seattle's a great bike town. It's a great metropolitan town in general. We always thought our brand would do fantastic there until we went to do a sales trip there and found out that no bike shop in Seattle wants to buy a bike that does not have disc brakes. Um, so I think that was an interesting learning curve for us as uh, really getting smart about not only what cities we could do well in, but what regions, and that some regions, unless we wanted to introduce different product, we simply weren't going to be able to perform there, and that was just the way it had to be. In selling the product to retailers or customers, consumers in general, talk to me about a company like yours that has limited marketing dollars. What would be your advice in creating awareness and demand for your type of product? Sure. So one of the things, so I come from a bit of an advertising background. And so one of the smartest things I ever heard uh, from a very famous creative director um, is he told me once that when he assigns a assignment to his creative team, right, if, if they're working on, you know, pick any big national brand and the brand says we want to do a campaign. What he told me is when he goes to his creative department and says, you know, they want this done, what he tells him is, you are not allowed to come show me a ad or you're not allowed to come show me a TV script. What I want to see instead is the press release. What I want to see is why is this idea so good that the New York Times is going to write a front page article about this? Um, and so that so for me, that's something we've done since day one that's been ingrained in us is we went, look, we don't have an ad budget. We don't have a media buying budget. So, you know, we're going to have to really come up with interesting ideas that are going to create a lot of noise and let these kind of news outlets or publications do our advertising for us. And so that's really, you know, if, if it's funny, I've probably written about 40 of these at this point where every time me and Jesse have an idea for something we want to execute, step one is I go back to my computer and I write a press release and then we kind of put it up and we show it to a handful of our kind of closest, uh, you know, advisors and friends and say, you know, do we think this idea holds water? And so for us, it's always been about being very honest with ourselves in that we don't have any money to spend on advertising. So our ideas uh, really need to be able to generate buzz or else they, we simply can't afford to do them. Ben, let's shift the topic to pricing. How, what has it been like pricing your product and what are some of the challenges associated with that? So pricing is interesting. Um, there is in the in, in our world in the bike world specifically, there's a pretty easy math that most companies do, which is a standard retailer, a standard bike shop wants say 
32 to 40 percent margin on every bike that they're going to sell. So you go, okay. So what you know, and then we then you kind of do the math of what do you need to make per unit in order to uh, you know build your business. And so for us, it, it's always been kind of a you know a, a cross between figuring out here's what our landed cost is, here's what the market is selling this product for our competitors, knowing you know this is what a retailer needs to make off of it. Now, in the, right, and that, those are kind of the fixed costs in our mind. And now the variable cost is, or the variable number is, what does Handsome need to make on it? And so there's some products where we make a really great margin, and there's some products where we hardly make any margin, but we see value in offering that because it opens up the door and, and brings people into the brand that then hopefully we can sell them other products once they've already gotten you know, a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about Handsome. Let's get personal. So, Ben, let's get personal for a second in this final closing segment. What motivates a guy like you, Ben Morrison, to stop talking about a new business idea and actually applying yourself fully to launching a company like Handsome? That's, uh, yeah, you know, what's what's interesting to me, and again, um, so one of the best things I've ever done and that I continue to do is find as many smart people as I can and ask them if they'll get coffee and talk to them and learn. And so, you know, one of the things that was a really aha moment for me that that let us really start going was talking to people that I knew were wildly successful. And when I'd sit down and ask them, you know, well, what's the formula? How do you do this? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, overwhelmingly, once we got really candid, people's responses were, look, man, nobody knows what the hell we're doing. We're all just making it up as we go. Um, and so that was really kind of the, the moment that really sparked in me of, well, geez, if these guys can do it, I can do it. Um, and so it, it was kind of that idea of, you know, I think really the, the companies that work and the companies that get ahead are really the guys who show up, you know? I mean, d- decisions are made by people who show up and, and it's it's kind of just putting one foot in front of the other. Um, you know, it's, I was talking to another guy last night that runs a small business here in town and we were talking about how interesting it is that we looked at both of our companies and kind of our successes and failures and what's worked and what hasn't. And, and what we were both realizing is, or at least I can tell you for handsome, you know, not a single thing we have done has ever shaken out exactly the way I thought it would. Now, sometimes it went worse, sometimes it went better, but nothing has gone according to plan one way or the other. There's always stuff that pops up or stuff that changes. Um, and so for us, it's been really about how do you be highly adaptable and how, you know, when somebody, when, when a force comes, you know, be it you lose a manufacturer, being, be it a shipment goes wrong, you know, inevitably things are going to go wrong. How well can you bounce back up, adapt, and then keep forging ahead? Ben, are you a creator at heart? And was it your destiny to launch something like Handsome Cycles? 
I think I am a creator at heart, you know. Um, I have parents that are pretty entrepreneurial themselves. They were both in advertising for about 30 years and both freelance for a long time. And so, you know, I'm, I was very accustomed to that idea of having to go out and hustle. Um, and so I, I think it's very much, you know, in my wiring um, to be able to go out and figure out how to pull something off and, and make it happen. Um, you know, I've definitely, I, I always, I, I, you know, there, there's a few industries I've always wanted to do something in. Golf, you know, it's, for me, I've always wanted to do something in bikes, golf, and watches. Those are the three, kind of my three favorite passions and the three areas I've always wanted to do things in. And so I think it was inevitable I was going to do something in bikes, and, and then we'll see if I can figure out how to, to make some noise in the other two as well. Well, that'll be the next interview in a few months. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, ben, what have been your biggest joys, or, or what are you most proud of while starting or managing Handsome Cycles? Honestly, I think one of my biggest joys early on, which I still love, is um, when we would go to the trade show every year, and I would al- we always we and a company ten times bigger than us would come and look at our marketing materials, look at our catalog, and they would always go, "You guys must have spent ten times on this than what we've ever spent on anything." Um, and of course, it was complete smoke and mirrors. I mean, we just, I, we knew how to design better materials. And so I think one of our biggest joys is people are usually very astounded at how small Handsome is. You know, we have been very good and very deliberate about, from the beginning, I mean, we've kind of started to live up to it now, but from the beginning, we were very deliberate about this company needs to look much bigger and much more successful than it actually is. You know, at the beginning, it was just two of us who had no idea what they were doing um, and we had really no money behind us, but we knew how to go to market looking like, you know, we were absolutely bankrolled through and through. And so to me, I, you know, I think, John, if you, uh, I believe you worked at Fallon at one point and this was, you know, Pat Fallon's famous line, which I love is, you know, is talking about we're here for brands that would rather outsmart the competition than outspend them. And so that is always something that I've loved about what we do at Handsome is I think we know how to do more with less than any other company in our category. So we talked a little bit about the joys. What have been your biggest frustrations or challenges and how have you overcome them? You know, the, so one of the biggest um Honestly, probably one of the biggest frustration and challenges was when we opened our retail store. Um, we designed a world-class retail store that right in downtown Minneapolis that didn't shake out the way we wanted it to. You know, we were really banking on a very specific idea with a very specific consumer in mind, and you know, we thought we had all the research in line that it was there and it was going to work. And once we opened, what we really realized was the consumer that we thought wanted to come to this store and have this experience simply didn't exist, or at least not enough of them to justify what we were having to put into this store. Um, and so that was one of the, you know, the biggest struggles is to pull, you know, we, 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 we put our blood, sweat, and tears and over a year into developing and rolling out this incredible retail space that 
once it was open, it just wasn't performing the way we wanted it to. Um, but what was interesting was then, you know, me and, and my business partner, Jesse, after having the retail space for about 18 months, we had this come to Jesus with each other where we said, look, let's, you know, let's shake the Etch-A-Sketch here. Pretend we were going to start Handsome right now. What would we do differently? What have we learned? You know, there are no sacred cows. Everything's on the table. And that led us to completely reformulate the entire business model. Um, you know, and now we're doing about, f and so that all happened in 2015. And for 2016, you know, I think our sales numbers are up about 45% from what they were last year. And so, you know, to me, that's a pretty great example of, you know, what was one of the biggest blows our business has had of putting all these resources into a store but then us being able to apply those learnings into something really positive that ultimately drive our business much farther forward. Ben, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and maybe what triggers it? And how have you dealt with it? Uh, oh, I have a ton of self-doubt. <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, it's 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 um, it's very interesting to be kind of out on the tightrope by yourselves, um, and also you know when there's really not a net underneath it. And so, I, you know, what what triggers it for us, or specifically for me, is when things happen that I have not accounted for. You know, when when I think something's going to perform one way and we roll it out and it goes differently or goes south or goes sideways. Um, you know, that really, to me, tends to kind of shake me to my core and go, holy, sh maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, again, but then so far, we've always been able to kind of pivot it and figure out a different solution to the problem um, and then be able to pull it off. And that, and that kind of, you know, restabilizes things. But, um, but oh, yeah, my, my days are, are usually filled with self-doubt. <laughs> So perhaps think of yourself prior to 2008 sure. and then think of yourself now. Of course, starting a business is very, very difficult. So how has starting your own business changed you as a person, if at all? How has it impacted you? It's made me a lot more inquisitive. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it, I, I will say I think it's, you know, so I, I'm a person that didn't go to college. I started working, you know, at, at 19, I got, I started getting internships and I just hit the ground running. And so for me, running handsome has really been my version of going to college. And so, you know, I think it's, it's made me more inquisitive. It's, it's, it's made me learn, um, made me really have to learn how to stretch myself into doing things that I didn't necessarily think were in my wheelhouse. I mean, you know, if you would have asked me before 2008 what a P&L was, I had no, I had zero clue. You know, I had no idea how to source anything. I mean, it's, it's what it constantly makes me do, which I'm eternally grateful for, is, you know, you see what these things come in front of you that seem like these insurmountable challenges, and then, bef and, and you, before you know it, you've kind of climbed over it and kind of look back and go, well, holy I can do that. I think I can do just about anything. I mean, I figured that much out. Um, and so it, to me, it's kind of been this amazing experience of 
you know, at times it's wildly humbling when things go wrong, and at other times it's wildly empowering when things go right, and you think you can conquer just about any challenge. Um, and so it's, I mean, I, I to, uh, you know, I think, you know, when me and my wife have kids, I think the, the best advice I'll tell them is, is, you know, college is great, but, you know, if you really want to learn how to get ahead and, and, and learn how to hustle in this world, uh, starting your own business is, I think, one of the best ways you can do it. Related to that previous question, what have you learned most about yourself in starting a business like Handsome? Um, you know, I think one of the things I learned, and it's one of my favorite things I say to myself constantly, is you're not that good. And people often see that as a negative, but I really see it as a positive, right? In the sense of, you know, uh, on a much more micro level, you know, it's, you know, why when I go home every day do I have to hang my keys on the same hook on the wall? It's because I'm not good enough to be able to just put them anywhere and then remember where they are. And so, you know, what I think it's really let me do is really get a, a really good handle on where my weaknesses are, where my faults are, be cognizant of that, and now start working on designing solutions and designing, um, you know, workarounds that let me kind of still move along knowing those limitations, but let's, let's work on them and, and work on getting better at it. Two final questions here as we close out the interview with Ben Morrison of Handsome Cycles. Ben, who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, personally, it'd have to be my mom. You know, me and my, uh, you know, my, my dad's lived in New York since we were about four years old. And so we were by and large kind of raised by a single mom who was a, a single mom that was an art director, a uh, freelance art director at that. And so, you know, we, I kind of got to watch firsthand what it looks like to have to, like I said before, to really go out and hustle. Um, and, and watch, you know, you know, in freelancing and especially in advertising freelancing, there's ups, there's downs. And so, you know, I think it was really watching her um, hustle and then and then when things, you know, when, when, say, work fell off, having to go, okay, well, how do I apply these skills to do something else? How do I keep moving? Um, you know, I mean, I think it was watching her really never let her foot off the accelerator and just keep figuring out how to move forward um, was, I think, easily one of the, the biggest influences. And finally, did I miss any questions that you feel you'd like to provide answers to, or do you have any closing pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs? Sure. You know, I think one thing that is something we did with Handsome early on that I cannot recommend enough is when we did start looking for money and we you know we knew we needed to raise capital we were very cognizant of the fact that we did not want somebody who was simply going to write us a check we knew that we were a small company um, and that we needed somebody that was going to bring more value than just a checkbook to that relationship and so I think that's one of the best things I can recommend to any entrepreneur is you know, if, if you're going to be giving equity to somebody or if you're going to be looking for money, try and align yourself with people or with companies that can bring more value than just a checkbook because though money is part of the equation, it takes a whole lot more than just cash in order to be successful. 
Ben, you've been great. Congratulations on your courage, your success, and sharing your experiences with us. It's been great talking with you. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business. 